0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. When the 1631 edition of the King James Version was hot off the press, they discovered that there was a word missing. And Archbishop Loud was so enraged that he fined the printers the equivalent of a lifetime's income, and the 1631 edition became known as the Wicked Bible. Obviously, it was an important word the printers had accidentally excluded the word not in verse 14. It read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Perhaps that was a pre-Freudian slip because many people today wouldn't miss that word. In an attempt to illustrate to his students the principle of downsizing, a university professor asked his class to reduce the Ten Commandments to nine. Which one do you think they chose to exclude? The Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Recently in the Springs, Florida, lawyers for a man charged with child abuse asked the trial judge to remove a plaque of the Ten Commandments outside the courtroom because it prejudiced the jurors. Presumably, the Seventh Commandment was the prejudicial statement. We still have people today editing the Seventh Commandment, only now it's not accidental. Dr. Donald Granvold, a professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, surveyed 262 marriage counselors. 22% thought that when a wife has an affair, marriages are not jeopardized. And only, I'm sorry, 22% thought that when a wife has an affair, marriages are jeopardized. And only 2% thought that when a husband has an affair, marriages are in trouble. And 40% of the counselors admitted that they themselves had had an affair. And so we've got the blind leading the blind, and we are falling into a ditch. A Reader's Digest poll showed that 50% of all husbands and 35% of all wives have committed adultery. Half the husbands and a third of the wives in our country. You say, well, Christians are doing a lot better, right? Well, in 1988, Christianity Today did a survey of its readers. 23% said they had had extramarital intercourse, and 45% said they had done something with another person they deemed sexually inappropriate. And those are the subscribers to Christianity Today magazine. We need to put the knot back in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, there are three ways you can commit this sin of adultery. Number one, by being sexually unfaithful to your spouse or having sexual relations with a married person. Number two, by lustful thoughts. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now Jesus was not talking about the incidental involuntary glance. That's temptation. Jesus was talking about the intentional repeated gaze. When you undress a woman in your mind, that is adultery. And just as we saw that murder can take place in your heart, adultery can take place in your heart. And then there's a third way we can commit this sin, and that is by illegitimate divorce. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, 32 to say, Anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. When you divorce your spouse without a just biblical cause, that's adultery. And so adultery can be committed in a motel room, in a TV room, or in a courtroom. Now my purpose today is not to resurrect your past. If you have committed adultery and that cannot be changed and you've repented of it and confessed it to the Lord. He has forgiven you and He has forgotten it and you need to as well. Now you may still be suffering the consequences of that but if you're still feeling the guilt that's not from God because God has forgiven. That's coming from Satan. My purpose today is to focus on the future. And I want to tell you this morning how to have an affair-proof marriage. And I want to suggest five ways to you. Number one, magnify the covenant. When you are married, you entered into a covenant relationship with your spouse. And you need to magnify that. I helped my neighbor last weekend put up a basketball goal. And when we got done putting up the the, the backboard and secured it, it was real wobbly. So we dug into the box and we found the instructions. <clears throat> Some of us don't dig into the box for the instructions until our marriage gets real wobbly. You know, the instructions for marriage are given back in Genesis chapter 2 where God established the very first marriage. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read this in verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now I want you to notice three things about marriage there. Number one, the priority of marriage. He says you are to leave father and mother. Marriage has the highest priority of any human relationship. In terms of human relationships, parents are not your supreme commitment. And children are not your supreme commitment. Your supreme commitment is your spouse. Second, he tells us here the permanence of marriage. And that's seen in the word cleave. It means to stick with like glue. Pop poet Rod McEwen's wedding illustrates the current attitude toward commitment in marriage. After they said their self-written vows, here's what the pastor said, "'This is a vow for forever. "'If forever should end for the two of you or one of you, "'tomorrow or next year, "'stay together only as long as you need each other. "'Go only when your need for the other ends.'" Now, that's a short definition, of forever. But you see, marriage is not until someone better comes along. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, it's not people who stick themselves together. It's God who sticks you together. Marriage is permanent. It is until death do us part. You say, but we have problems. Everybody's got problems. You can't take two sinners and stick them together without problems. But in the midst of those problems, you are to be coming together rather than coming apart. Because marriage is permanent. And then the third thing he tells us about marriage is the purpose of marriage. And that's seen in the last phrase of verse 24. They shall become one flesh. Now notice when the sexual union takes place. After the bridge has been burned to mom and dad and after the wall of security has been established in the marriage and after the glue of commitment is there, then there is physical intimacy. But he's not talking here only about physical intimacy. He's talking about a oneness that is physical, emotional, and spiritual. Someone has said marriage is a romance novel, and in the first chapter both the hero and the heroine die, and they become one new person. And then we read in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now that's not simply a fashion statement. What he's telling us there when he says that they were both naked and were not ashamed is that there were no barriers, There were no secrets. There were no walls between them. Nothing was hidden. They were completely together. And sexual intimacy is the expression of that oneness. And that's why the Bible refers to sexual relations with the term knowing. In Genesis 4, 1, it says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's the expression of the deepest form of unity and oneness and lifelong Commitment. If you are going to have an affair proof marriage, you need to magnify the covenant you have made and understand that sexual intimacy is the expression of that oneness. Second way that you're to affair proof your marriage is to measure the consequences. Now, God is not a cosmic killjoy, He thought up sex, it's His idea. In Genesis chapter 1, he put Adam and Eve in the garden and they were naked and he said, it is very good. But it is to have guidelines because to misuse it brings dire consequences. Now the seventh commandment, like all the other commandments, is not designed to bring you pain. It is designed to bring you protection. It's like the sign at the bottom of the exit ramp to the interstate that says, Do not enter. You see, you don't resent that sign, you appreciate that sign because it's there to protect you. God created water. You can't live without it, but if you get too much of it, you drown. God gave you the gift of fire. It can either warm you or burn you. God has given you the drive for sex, Properly controlled and expressed inside of marriage, it's fulfilling and it's wonderful. But outside of marriage, it's destructive. In fact, nothing damages like sexual sin. Consider the consequences. Number one, it's a sin against God. It is breaking His commandment. In fact, throughout Scripture, the frequency of this prohibition is second only to idolatry in the Old Testament, and it's second to none in the New Testament. It's a sin against God. David realized that a little too late in Psalm 51 when he said, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And God doesn't take it lightly. In 1 Corinthians 6:9, we read that, that adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. First consequence is obvious. It's a sin against God. But there's a second consequence, and that is it is a sin against one's own self. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual intercourse was uniquely designed by God to express both physical and spiritual unity between a husband and wife. And so to get involved with someone else sexually is not just skin deep. You are giving a part of yourself away, and that can never be reversed. There is no sin that has quite the damage physically, psychologically, and spiritually that immorality does. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32, it says, But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys Himself. Now you hear a lot of talk today about safe sex. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. It destroys you. We need to be promoting sacred sex. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let it be pure. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge you. You cannot have adultery safely. It's a sin against yourself. And it's like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of Quaker oats. For one moment of pleasure, he threw away all the promises of God. But there's a third consequence, and that is it's a sin against one's home. This is a sin that destroys homes. It's a total betrayal of your spouse, and it brings irreparable harm to your children. Robertson McQuilkin in his book Biblical Ethics put it this way, when you commit adultery, you are saying to your child, your mother is not worth much, and your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. Fourth consequence, it's a sin against one's church. You say, well, my personal sex life is none of your business. Yes, it is, because we are all part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? May it never be. And then there's a fifth consequence. And that is it's a sin against one's world. Because you as a Christian are a testimony to the world around you. And what does it say to the world when the Gospel can't give you the power to control your own sexuality? If you're flirting with adultery, Measure the consequences. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against your own self. It's a sin against your own home. It's a sin against your own church. It's a sin against your own world. But let me add a footnote. Just because Jesus said that we can commit adultery in our heart, don't jump to the conclusion that there's no difference between physical adultery and mental adultery. Don't fall for the reasoning. I've already thought it. I might as well do it. Yes, both are sins, but physical adultery brings far greater consequences. It breaks the marriage covenant. It provides grounds for divorce. It violates your body. It violates the body of someone else. Adultery of the heart doesn't carry those same consequences. But having said that, let me say this. When you do not address adultery of the heart, You are just one opportunity away from the act of adultery. James put it into this equation in James 1.15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When you leave lust unbridled, it gives birth to sinful actions which give birth to death. Paul Harvey told the story about the way an Eskimo hunts down a wolf. Listen to this story. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent, and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh blood. He licks faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow." If you want to affair-proof your marriage, you better measure the consequences. third way to affair-proof your marriage is maintain The closeness. The closer you get as husband and wife, the more difficult is it going to become for somebody to pull you apart. Now that's a challenging thing to become close because men and women are different. You have to watch a man who says, I understand women because he'll lie about other things. And the title to the popular book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, is pretty accurate. Well, husbands, you don't have to understand all women, but you do have to understand your wife. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says, You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. I heard about one husband who called a therapist and said, I don't know what to do. My wife thinks she's a piano. And the therapist said, well, bring her in for an appointment. And the husband said, are you crazy? Do you know what it costs to move a piano? There's a husband who understood his wife. See, other people didn't understand, but he did. Willard uh, Harley, in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, lists the five most basic needs of men and the five most basic needs of women. You know what's the top need for men? Sexual fulfillment. Guess what? It's not even on the woman's list. And that's why you hear men saying, I'd love to fulfill my duty to my wife, but she won't let me. Well, that could be because what you are offering to fulfill, she doesn't need. See, the first two on the woman's list are affection and communication. What your wife needs starts in the morning, not in the evening. It starts in the kitchen, not in the bedroom. It starts with her emotions, not with her body. And when you begin to understand her and meet her needs, you will talk with her more, you will listen to her more, you will compliment her more, you will date her more, you will touch her with affection more. She won't only get your undivided attention at 10 o'clock when you want to be intimate. You see, we as husbands need to become students of our wives so that we can meet her needs. And when we are meeting her needs, she will find it easier to meet our needs. And guess what? In the process, you are developing that oneness. You are knowing each other in the context of marriage, and you are also maintaining that closeness, which affair proves your marriage. Alan Alda's wife put it this way. She said, it's real easy to leave your spouse. It's not so easy to leave your best friend. Fourth way to affair-proof your marriage. Minimize the chances. There are things you can do to minimize the chance of this happening. Number one is flee. Flee. This is the primary way of escape that the Bible gives us. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says flee immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says flee from youthful lusts. Don't place yourself in circumstances where you know you'll be tempted. You know, one of the most difficult places today is the office. And you've got to be careful at the office because at the office everybody looks good and everybody smells good. And you don't see them at home with curlers and diarrhea. So you've got to be sure in the office that you keep those relationships professional. But if I had to pick a place that's the most difficult, it's the threat of business travel. And if you're an individual who has to travel with your job, set up standards and minimize the opportunity. Travel with somebody else. Tell them at the front desk you want them to turn off the movie channel. Take a picture of your wife and kids and put them up on the television set. A big picture. Call home every night. You say, well, isn't that kind of going to extremes? Well, you know, I would rather go overboard than be thrown overboard. We need to flee. Secondly... Choose your friends carefully. Your friends can either be an encouragement or a detriment in this area. And no matter who your friends are, don't look to another person besides your spouse to meet your emotional needs. Studies show that the most likely person to commit adultery with is the spouse of a friend. And then third, guard your mind. There is no such thing as a one-night stand. It's a process. It's a series of events, and it begins when you do not guard your mind. What do you read? What do you watch? What do you think about? What do you listen to? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to capture those thoughts and bring them in obedience to Jesus Christ. Job understood that. In Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And you need to take it seriously too and minimize the chances for adultery. Fifth way you can have an affair-proof marriage is make the commitment. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7 to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself. Let me suggest four areas you can do that. Number one, seek God. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, I'm not just to flee lust because of the negative consequences. There's also a positive consequence. I can join those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Sexual sins and impure thoughts are impediments to intimacy with God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5:8, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." Your purity enhances your vision of God, and impurity will cloud it. The very best thing you can do to overcome sexual is to seek God with all your heart. Secondly, develop a divine awareness. As Christians, we often spend much of our lives ignorant of God's presence. We're like Jacob in Genesis 28, 16, who awoke from sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, if you're not aware of the Lord's presence in your life, you're going to have a difficult time with temptation. We need to be like Joseph who, when he was tempted by Potiphar in Genesis 39, 9, said, How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Third area, memorize Scripture. Jesus set the example in Matthew chapter 4 when he rebuffed the temptations of Satan three times over by quoting the Old Testament Scriptures. If he needed to memorize Scripture, how much more do we? The psalm writer said in one, uh, Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And the fourth area, establish accountability. Give someone permission to hold you accountable to these commitments. Someone who will ask the tough questions, someone who will help you toe the line and keep your soul faithful God. How do you affair-proof your marriage? Magnify the covenant that marital sexual intimacy displays. Measure the consequence. It's the most damaging sin of all. Maintain the closeness. He or she ought to be your best friend. Minimize the chances. Do all you can to limit those opportunities. And make the commitment. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this simple commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And Father, as we have reflected on it today, I pray that You might challenge us in the deepest parts of our heart to be people of purity, not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, so that You might be pleased in all that we do and say. We pray in Jesus' name.